Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least, and a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. On the pod today, we have Jessica Martinez. And Jessica is our first person who has come on the pod who is actually involved in the day-to-day business of politics. She works on Capitol Hill. So this is a pretty good opportunity for us to see uh, a career path that led someone from Tremont in Utah to Capitol Hill. And kind of what is what that's like, uh, she works for a congressman and really has a really important job for that congressman, leads a team, and she's just a smart, powerful, strong woman who has a story just like anybody else who uh, has found her way and got into a really important position. So I'm kind of lucky and and really uh, happy to have this guest on today so that we can have someone that's really in the political arena and sharing her story about how she got there. And that leads us to the part of the show where I tell you something that I've been thinking about and I've been learning about. And, you know, since speaking with Jessica, I've been thinking a lot about politics, Utah politics, and just wondering how in the world did Utah become so far dominating red state? You know, and I, and I wondered, I wondered, what is the history here? Is Utah always been a red state? I mean, it has been as long as I've lived. And what are the powers and the forces that have led to that? Uh, before we get to some of those powers and forces, uh, I, I was really interested in some of the voting patterns that Utah has had in the past. You know, Utah has actually voted for some very progressive presidents in the past. They supported FDR four times. This was back before there were term limits for president. FDR won the presidency during four different elections. And you know, Utah actually supported him above the national average. Utah voted for him by about a 70% uh, at a 70% rate, where nationally he only had about a 60% uh, on the average of those elections. And we know this is FDR and New Deal economics. This is where he established our modern welfare state. And Utahns were receiving the benefits from that. And it really helped our economy during that time. And Utahns supported him. They then voted for Harry Truman in 1948. Uh, continued, the next president was Dwight Eisenhower, who was really a moderate uh, Republican, but uh, Utahns voted for him. They then also supported Lyndon Johnson over Barry Goldwater. And you know, Lyndon Johnson led some of our most progressive time in our country's history with creating Medicaid and Medicare and expanding civil rights the civil of the Civil Rights Act. He was very much a supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, so, you know, Lyndon Johnson was a very progressive president, and this is a president that Utah voted for. So I was really been thinking, well, when did this happen? When did this change happen? And we start to see it here in the 70s as uh, Linda Johnson was the last Democratic president that Utah voted for. And I started listening to a podcast that featured a, a guy by the name of Matthew L. Harris, who's a professor, uh, a historian. And he wrote a book called Ezra Taft Benson and the Making of the Mormon Right. Ezra Taft Benson was the prophet of the church as I grew up. And so I remember his name very uh, a lot. And, you know, as I started listening to this podcast, I could just hear my dad's politics coming through everywhere. So, dad, if you're listening, I love you. But Benson brainwashed you. I hate to say it. But Ezra Taft Benson was actually the secretary of agriculture under Dwight Eisenhower and held, you know, this is a prominent role. He was actually a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. For those of you who are not Mormon, don't have a Mormon background, um, this just means he was a, a high up leader in the church. And he was also serving as the Secretary of Agriculture in Dwight Eisenhower's cabinet. And right from the beginning, he is a controversial figure. Even in the cabinet, he has very, very far right politics. And 
as Secretary of Agriculture, he really wants to dismantle a lot of the farm subsidies that are being handed out to, to um, farmers that had been established. And, and you know, that's a, that's a hard job. He starts trying to take these away from farmers and they get mad. And he really has a kind of a tumultuous time as the Secretary, Secretary of Agriculture. But Dwight Eisenhower really loves him, stands by him. In, in several instances, and he serves the, the whole eight years that Dwight Eisenhower was in office. And it's after he leaves the Secretary of Agriculture position, he starts to be introduced to uh, the John Birch Society, who is led by a, the, by a man by the name of Robert Welsh. And the John Birch Society is a radical anti-communist organization. And as far right as you can get, you know, this group really is the QAnon uh, of the 1960s and 70s. They are uh, really accusing anyone and everyone, uh, coming up with these wild conspiracies about communism and how, you know, even Dwight Eisenhower's administration was filled with communists and that he himself, Dwight Eisenhower, a five-star general, beloved president, was actually a communist. And Ezra F. Benson repeats these things and has really bought into it hook, line, and sinker. A, a man who was his boss and a man who he really had a lot of admiration for, he starts to uh, call him, that man, a communist. And really, these these what these conspiracy theories are about is that the government is here to take over our lives. These social programs that FDR put in place, Eisenhower was the first Republican president and lots of people thought that he would try to undo those, but he didn't. And this is where the conspiracy starts to grow. And Ezra F. Benson just continually throughout these years, remember, he is a high, high leader in the church. The church cannot be, it cannot be understated how much um, the members of the church, this is, you know, a high, high population in Utah, look up to, respect, and admire Ezra Taft Benson. And he gives sermons in general conference, which is the church's big meeting. He gives uh, addresses at BYU where he tells the students, you if you're going to be here at BYU and living on government assistance, you should drop out of school. Which is crazy, right? Because the, the other thing they're asking these BYU students to do is to get married, uh, have babies, and but also don't take government assistance. And I actually kind of remember some of this growing up and about how this, there was this sort of, I don't know, stigma about getting on on any sort of government assistance, even when you were in school. I, I didn't really quite understand it, but I'm beginning to grow and understand it more as I started to learn about Ezra Taft Benson and the making of the Mormon Rite by uh, Matthew L. Harris. So this, it cannot be overstated how much these politics started to cement themselves inside Mormonism. And you know, it wasn't without controversy. Uh, the other uh, members of the of the that were leaders of the church really pushed back on him at times. These are conservative people themselves, but not radicals, and, and they push back on him. And they, uh, but they also really want to show a united front. So although they push back on him in private, when he makes these big bold statements about welfare and about women. Uh, there's, a, he, there's a lot in here about race and he, during the civil rights era, and the, the other members of the, of the leadership push back on him, but not publicly. So publicly, all the members are hearing are from the one leader of the church who really knows politics, who was in the arena, who was in the cabinet. All they're hearing is these far, far right, extreme views, and they cement themselves inside Mormonism. You know, there are other factors at play during this time. 
you know, social issues that that come up, like the Equal Rights Amendment that the church is is against. Um, uh, obviously, abortion is a big issue that kind of lends people to the right. But this leader, this extreme radical who would, you know, if it wasn't for the other leaders, he wanted to be on the board of, of the John Birch Society and would have been. Robert Welsh wanted him to be on the board, wanted him to be a leader because he had the exp- that experience, and but the other leaders of the church wouldn't let him. So not only what was he really involved and really, but he would have, if he could have been, would have been on in a leadership position in that. And so those seeds definitely still exist today. Like I said, uh, any... Uh, you know, member of the church who grew up in this era, if your parents were, you know, if you're my age, your parents were really listening to this and really hearing this. And then it got fed down to you. And, you know, government was evil. Government was coming to to take over. And socialism was, was just a, a shadow communism. And it was all coming to get us. There were communists everywhere. You know, I don't think I heard a lot of that far, far right radical conspiracies in in my family, but definitely all the things about uh, big government, about taxes, about welfare states, and all of that problematic nature. And so that really has cemented itself. And it's something that we, I don't quite know what to do about, but I think it's, if you're going to understand politics in Utah, then uh, maybe go ahead and listen to uh, Ezra Taft Benson and the making of the of the Mormon right, or pick up that book and and give it a read because it is really fascinating and really gives us an insight into why some of the politics are cemented the way they are. Particularly because Ezra Taft Benson became the president president of the church, and the president of the church is also known as the prophet. This is the man who speaks directly for God, and he did kind of tame a little bit of these politics, but never went back on them, never uh, spoke anything other than the things that he had already said. So, you know, this is a, a man who, according to many of our citizens in Utah, spoke directly with God, and therefore his politics were God's politics. So it definitely plays a huge factor in the way Utah is and still is with some of its very, very right-leaning politics. So with that, now our conversation with Jessica Martinez. Look how far we don't came, we made it to this land of surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a bride. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set to survive. Right here, live in the flesh. Well, Jessica, I am super excited to have you on the pod today. You are our producer's sister, but you're obviously way more than that. You're way cooler than Dan, to be honest. Tell us a little bit about you and about what you are doing. Thanks so much, Kevin. I'm so excited and happy to be here. And I'm going to save that snippet and carry it with me forever and always for every uh, family reunion that we have, Dan. Um, So Jessica Martinez, I'm so excited to be here. I am in Washington, D.C. I am a legislative director. Uh, and I'm sorry, excuse me, before I start to go into this whole thing, I am speaking on my personal capacity, uh, just talking about my experience of what it's like and, and my journey that it, uh, I've taken to get to Capitol Hill. So, yeah. That's I'm, one uh, of those caveats you have to give when you're like kind of big time because like, <laughs> like oh, I don't, want, I don't want, you know, if you're kind of big time, then like, the, and you, you got some people, you say some things and the boss might not be happy, but yeah, yeah, no, he, I, I, I like that. So <laughs> tell us so what funny. you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a legislative director for a member of Congress on Capitol Hill. Um, currently I have, I manage a legislative staff. What I do for my boss is really just look at all of the bills that come out onto the house floor and give them advice on you know, what the bills do, where the stakeholders are at, what their interests are, and, and kind of just guide them a little bit more on where I think the best routes to take are. So I, um, what I does that mean exactly? So, so you are, you are, you have, you work for a congressman, 
and you like bills come through and almost before the congressman reads them you're like reading through them getting into the details and and yeah yeah yeah. so i can so let me just sorry take a step back a little bit on um uh capitol hill 101 i guess and talking about bills come um to fruition how you see things starting to pass through congress so uh traditionally if you are um looking for a bill, if you have an idea for a bill, right, you'll, you'll draft it up, you'll, there's a legislative council that happens where they can actually put a bill text into place to get your idea on paper. Uh, Once you have that, the legislative council will kind of direct your bill into different committees of jurisdiction. So depending on what type of bill it is, um, you can be in uh, House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, the bill can land in Education and Labor, Energy and Commerce. Just um, so I'll give you an example. Uh, if there is a bill on healthcare, on Medicaid expansion, that bill will get drafted. Um, you will, it, the bill will be uh, sent to the committee, which most likely will have uh, jurisdiction in Energy and Commerce and sometimes Ways and Means if it's more of like tax or provider um, or payments on, on those things. Um, so once that happens, to go through regular order, your bill will get pulled by the committee chairman. They'll kind of talk about the bill in the committee. Um, they'll have votes on it. If that bill passes out of committee, that bill will get onto a calendar, um, a suspension, or excuse me, a calendar where now you're looking at the majority um, leaders or like the Speaker of the House um, will kind of determine what bills will come to the floor. So there's a lot of bills. There are so many bills. <laughs> there are so many members of Congress who will introduce a ton of different bills. Um, and once they start going through um, some of that regular order, sometimes there's, there's different um, procedures that can happen where bills can kind of just be fast-tracked. Like for instance, the CARES Act, that wasn't something that went through regular order because it was a necessity, we needed it now. Um, that just went right to the floor. And when it comes to the floor, that's when all of the members of Congress can talk about it, can add amendments to it, can kind of, um, you know, they'll uh, ultimately vote on it. And that's my job now is to let my member of Congress know, um, hey, this bill is coming up this week. This is what the bill does. This is kind of, this is the past history of the bill. You know, if it, if it did go through regular order, if it didn't go, if it came from the Senate, um, so things like that. It just giving a kind of a clear background on on the uh, history of the actual bill, and then give them ultimately like a recommendation of, hey, this is this is how you know, this is how I would advise you to vote on the bill. And, you know, wow. So this, like, this is like a super, this is a super important job. Cause you know, I'm here, you know, lay person thinking about uh, these Congress people and they, you know, they just, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing them in the background, just pouring over and reading the bills and, and coming to their own conclusions and, and sounding very smart when they go to, when they talk to their constituents or their press. And really uh, that really smart person is you. Uh, telling the Congress people or someone like you or someone like you telling them and who has taken the time to pour over the bills and get the details out of them, get them their, their sound bites and the things they need to talk about and the important parts and the things that they need to bring up as in, 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 you know, lobbying the bill or helping the bill get passed. Totally. Yeah. 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 And, and that's not to say that members don't do that. They will look at bills, especially ones that they're passionate about, but they just don't have the time to do it for every single one. So, you know, um, just again, giving you an example, my boss is very interested and really wants to know everything that's happening in the healthcare space, you know, so they'll, so they will look and, and really have an understanding of it, but something like, financial services and maybe, you know, uh, uh, regulations or um, things that they have in like what's going on on Wall Street, well, they may not have as much of an insight into there. And so it would be my job to, you know, uh, give them more, more hindsight or or give them more insight. And for me personally, like I do tech and telecom. So like I can talk about all the bills that are coming through that space um, in more detail and in more kind of the nitty gritty stuff, uh, which, which helps them have a better understanding of the bill rather than just like looking at the top line messages. 
well, that is a really cool, really interesting job. Like to have to, to I'm, I'm really excited to have you on because like you're there, you're in DC on Capitol Hill and, and um, you came from kind of our neck of the woods here yeah. in Utah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tremont and I've got Utah, my represent. Tremont in, Tremont in Utah. And, and I sort of have this idea in my head that, you know, if someone is going to make it all the way to Capitol Hill and kind of be up there that, you know, you probably were in high school, um, straight A student, uh, then you probably graduated and you went straight to law school um, and graduated law school, you know, summa cum laude. And then um, you went, you know, you knew the whole time that maybe politics was the route. And, and then you went, you know, and, and were, broke through on on the Capitol Hill is is that how it is that how it works that's no I will tell you <laughs> um I appreciate that that's really awesome but that is uh not the route that I took um it's but that is a very traditional route I uh well tell uh, us just a little bit about you and and your and, and your background uh, where you came from and uh, when did you start thinking about going into politics and and uh, a little bit of your history and, and where you came from, what led you to that? No, I uh, originally, like I said, from Tremont in Utah, um, born and raised there. Mom is from Mexico. Um, my dad is the youngest of his family. He was born in um, Tremont, actually, but his oldest siblings were born in Mexico. So, you know, me and my brothers, we were first generation family. Um, had a, you know, regular rural upbringing. So yeah, it's, it's funny when you mentioned that timeline, because I think about all the things that people um, go through, like you said, you know, you, you uh, straight A student, you go right to college after high school, you go to law school, potentially, and then you have all of these uh, internships or, or different life experiences that will bring you to Capitol Hill. And every at every turn, I just feel like that is not something that uh, I experienced. <laughs> so um, just going back, I mean, even with, you know, high school, I mean, I was fine. I think I was a mediocre student. Um, but something different about me was I actually, uh, I got married, like super young when I was growing up. Um, so I was, How seven, I was 17 when I got married. 17 had you graduated high school yet I didn't graduate high school yet I <laughs> you got married in high school I got married in high school yeah I I did That's end up wild. I had enough credits though so I could skip that last semester and then I just walked with my school um but I mean at the time you know I was uh thinking like well how can I get out of this space. How can I get out of Tremont in Utah? Um, and, you know, I saw my oldest brother, he went to college and that was awesome. Um, and I feel like that could have been a route for me. Um, but I, I just didn't, at the time I was like, you know, this is uh, a safe choice. This is something that in my upbringing and I think in our communities, um, women can be seen as like, what is our end goal being? It's being married. It's having a husband and having kids and you know, traditional kind of uh, gender norms of like raising a family. And I thought that might be something that would be uh, where my path would take me. And so and tell me when you speak about, you know, you, you wanted to get out of Tremont and Utah. I know you speak fondly a little bit of, of that, your, your upbringing in Tremont and Utah, but what, yeah. what was, what was the impetus? Why were you like, ah, I, I'm going to get out of Tremont and Utah and marriage is how I'm going to do it at 17. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, you know, now, uh, what is it like 15 years later, <laughs> I can really appreciate um, being from Utah and being uh, uh, growing up in that rural area. It was just, it was, it was, uh, I think it was the family support and that community that I had there, but growing up, it was, uh, it's a little tough. I mean, I, you know, we're not, uh, we weren't of the predominant faith. You might, you know, we're, we were, I grew up Catholic. Obviously we're Latino family growing up around uh, predominantly white um, communities. And that's, that was fine. I think it was just a little bit, um, you know, there were some of the microaggressions that I think we sensed. And, and as I get, got older, really realized that that's what, that's what that was. Um, always questioning myself, always questioning kind of what it is, how high one can aspire to be, you know, um, I think I, I didn't really set my sights too high, to be honest, uh, when I was growing up and 
do you feel like the, be, you did that because you were a part of the minority race, a minority religion, and you felt like there was a, a class distinction there that you, maybe you could only rise so far out of? Was, was that part of what that, that was? Yeah, I, I, I think it was all, again, well-intentioned, but I, don't, I think people didn't realize that there were those kind of societal structures that were in place already that was just so hard to break out of. So actually, so um, can I, <laughs> let me go back a little bit. Um, excuse me, let me switch it up. Can I switch it up? Go. Oh. So, you know, I, I, I was married pretty young. I, I realized I had made an adult decision uh, before really understanding the, the weight of that and the, and what that meant. And um, so, you know, two years goes by, we get a divorce and uh, it was, it was pretty hard because again, we're in a small town and everybody knew the story. Everybody knew who I was. And it was, um, you know, I did spend a lot of time just trying to find myself and not, not knowing what was going to come next. And so I, I just hung out. I didn't, after high school, you know, I didn't go straight to college. Um, I started working at uh, so Manufacturing. Tell me a little bit, about, I'm, I'm going to stop you. I'll go, go back there. So like, I mean, you, you get, you get married at 17. Everybody, <laughs> everybody in the community is like, oh, like the Martinez family over there, Jessica got married at 17. And then like, you have to go through this really hard thing of like deci- figuring out that wasn't right for me. Um, and, and going through the divorce and how did that, how did that, like that, that, how did that influence you during those years? And what was that experience like? And how, how did that influence you uh, as you were going through that? Again, just have to keep coming back to the family support that I had. Um, you know, my parents really helped kind of bring me back a little because when I, after this happened, um, you know, he was a, a military guy. So he went off uh, to Iraq for 18 months or so, or I can't really remember now. But um, um, so when he came back, you know, it was just really hard. We, we both are, everybody knew who our families were. Um, and I think for me, it was a lot of shame, obviously, and, and just that fear that I had let my family down and that I had just again, made this really big decision because I thought I knew what I wanted. And I thought that, you know, if, if you could, um, I thought that things could just like, they're going to work out like, cause they, cause of course, why wouldn't they? <laughs> because you see it happen in the movies. And, um, and when it didn't, it just really, you know, took me, uh, quite a bit of time to come back and realize that I'm okay. I, I made a mistake and I owned it. I really needed to just understand that I can move on from this. I think that's something that, um, you know, gets lost a lot uh, when we talk about being from these areas that are just rural areas, when there's not a lot of opportunity, when there's not a lot of other people around who maybe uh, have had your same experiences or you can really relate to, um, sometimes that being in that headspace can be really hard to own and to navigate by yourself. And so, I mean, I did go, I went to counseling. Uh, I thought that was super beneficial. I mean, to go down a completely different pivot point, but, you know, normalizing mental health, I think is so huge and so important now um, when you see a lot of, you know, uh, what can happen, neg- negative impacts that, um, you know, not addressing it can can be for communities or for people. Yeah, and and so you went through this, really hard thing in a small town and everybody knew about it. And at some point you, you, you know, maybe the, the, the sounds like the counseling kind of helped you through that and, and helped relief some of the shame as it come, came through that. Uh, yeah. How did you pick yourself up and what did you do uh, going forward as you, as you transitioned out of that stage of your life? Yeah. Yeah. So big shout out. I know um, to, to my brothers and again, to my family, you know, I, my brother actually helped take me in. Uh, I lived in his basement for a little while uh, trying to figure out what I was doing. I did go back to school. Um, I did want to, you know, I thought that, okay, I'm here. I'm working at, um, I'm working as a forklift driver and it's cool. I get to party on the weekends, but like, what can I do to really better myself? If I really want to do something with my life, like I should, 
I should go to school because that seems like the, the next logical step that I saw a lot of people doing. Um, and I was always interested in kind of learning more of what was out there. So I enrolled, I went to the University of Utah, go Utes. Yeah. Um, and um, I started going there part-time. And I, you know, over a course of many different jobs and, and moving closer to um, uh, Salt Lake, I found myself um, serving at a restaurant. And I was doing that for a few years. And I, again, I was really just kind of hanging out, um, going to school on and off. And then, you know, some other things that happened in my life where I just, I wasn't quite there yet to really make big plunges, but um, I would serve a lot of lobbyists <laughs> and oh. I served lobbyist lunch. I just, I always had kind of the crappy lunch shifts that nobody likes, but I really enjoyed it because I was able to just talk to a bunch of people and, you know, kind of lounge around. And uh, I had asked them, you know, I noticed that you keep paying for these different people that you bring in, you know, what's going on here. <laughs> and you know, they, they told me a little bit about what they did. And I was like, this seems like a great gig. Like, how do I get in on this? <laughs> and that was actually my first taste of what that um, level of, of politics was in, in that, you know, just the, what that what that meant. And so coincidentally, one of my uh, classmates in a class that I had was like, oh, yeah, my husband's a lobbyist. Like, um, and I said, this is awesome. You know, can I like help me get an internship? I would love to hear more about what they do and how this process works. And so, you know, my last um, classes of doing French and international studies that I had been doing for those for the last three years, uh, I moved in my last um, semester and, and took an internship uh, for a trade association lobbying uh, for the state of Utah or, or in the state in the Utah state legislature and that was kind of my first taste of getting onto a state capitol hill and seeing kind of what that process looked like um, it was super that, interesting that is so interesting so you got your first taste in politics was like seeing these people come into your restaurant and you're you're serving them and you're like mm, like what's what's going on here and you just start chatting and talking with yeah. the, with these lobbyists and and you start learning um what what they're doing in these lunches and what and and tell me about that process of learning okay these these lobbyists they bring these people in and then they you know they they have lunch with them and then they talk about these different agendas and then um and then getting into that field yourself a little bit, what, what sort of things were you, what, like, get us into, like, get us a feel of what that is, what that lobbying is all about. I think people hear this lobbying thing, like, what, what, do they, what do they do, but get us a feel yeah. for what that is like on the inside. Totally. Yeah. And it comes in many different forms, right? I mean, this was just, this was very much like, um, I would say almost what everyone assumes is happening. And while it does happen, um, there's a lot more to it. So uh, are you asking just more in terms of like what the traditional lobbying looks like currently or kind of what that was then? What your experience was with it, you know, what your experience was learning about it in, as a server and then your experience with it as in, you know, in the field. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I noticed a lot of it is uh, interpersonal and just kind of your, your personality, interpersonal relationships uh, in that people, you know, you just got to... Um, I say this all the time and it's a, it's a weird thing to say, but it's like, you just gotta be cool. Like you just want, you gotta be a cool person that people want to be around. And that I notice is a lot, is like a really quality trait that um, really good lobbyists have. And uh, so, you know, when I was serving, it was just, again, it was just so interesting because I think for me personally, that was not, and, and it, I, it's, it's good and bad because it's a reflection of like, what I thought, um, you know, what are like, just kind of like a reflection of kind of like where uh, one could be in their life, right? <laughs> the idea that like getting a free lunch is, is something to strive for is just such a crazy idea, right? That like, that's, that's how little I thought of myself at the time. 
And like, mm. it's, it sucks. I mean, it's, it's really, again, it's just, it's healthy and eye-opening now for me to, especially where I'm at now, I can like really embrace it. Um, but a lot of people feel that way. So that was interesting. And it was, it was really good to hear and good to see. And then when I did see it on Capitol Hill, again, it's just more the uh, relationships that people have with the way that they uh, interact with state legislatures, the way that they interact with other stakeholders and stuff. It was just really eye-opening experience. Um, Were there a lot of other women in that space? So that's (laughs) going to actually get to that. Uh, One of the things I noticed and I found was there was not a lot of people who looked like me. Uh, There were not a lot of women and there were very few uh, people of color. Any any sort of like, uh, most of it was... um, you know, white men. And it was really interesting to hear their perspectives and, and noticing that they kept leaving out, you know, the narrative is, is so one way. And, you know, I just thought, where are the other voices here? You know, it's, it's hard. If you're, if we're talking about such important issues, why are we only talking about it through one lens? That's, you know, so, um, so after that, actually, I did, uh, look into the Democratic Party in Utah, the state Democratic Party. And I reached out and I was, I just sent an email and I was like, hey, I'm looking for a, a whatever help I can give, you know, if you guys have internships open or I'd love to just help out where I can. Um, and, you know, someone had gone back to me. Um, she said, you know what, we're actually just starting the Latino outreach program. I'd love for you to be an intern here. And I was like, this sounds great. <laughs> so. I checked in with her and that's how we started um, really doing a lot more outreach. And I became the Latino outreach coordinator for that state of Utah for a very short time while I was applying for the Hinckley Institute of Politics at the Utah University of Utah offers a um, internship program that can bring you out to DC. And so me and uh, along with my boyfriend at the time, uh, who's now my husband, (laughs) was like, oh, you know, if you try and apply out there, I will, he was going to the, he was going to Salt Lake Community College and he was done. He was going to get his associate's degree. And he was like, you know, I'm going to apply to GW and maybe we can both go out there together. He got accepted and I got accepted to an internship for Harry Reid's office. And I was, you know, again, I, I was like, this is great. Not really realizing who the Senate majority leader was. And so you make this jump. Well, I, I actually, I think it's really interesting that you, one of your motivating factors for like getting into politics was seeing that in, in the space you were in, there were not voices uh, like yours. And having not, that you were like, this is a space, this is a needed thing. And how did you find the confidence to do that. Cause you come from this space where like you, you told us about your history and you got married at 17 and you had this shaming process. And where did you get, where, how did you build that confidence as a Latino woman uh, to be like, I'm going to send an email to the Democrat, state democratic party. I'm going to get my foot in the door and then I'm going to, you know, how, how did that, how did you go through that experience? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think a lot of it came from, I guess a lot of it came from thinking, what's the worst that can happen? I don't get it. They don't reply back. I go out there and things don't work out. And I move back home. I already moved back home. (laughs) I already did. I already did this. Like I had such an experience again, just going through that, um, going through marriage and going through divorce and moving back home and trying to really rebuild my life that I thought, you know, really it's, all of these things are one step or are small steps that I, you know, um, I can always come back to my home base. I think that that's really what it comes down to is feeling that I had a support system and I had a place I could go back to and fall back on and people that I could rely on that I just never felt real fear in, in trying new things. I think that's just incredible uh, because, you know, uh, for a lot of people, you're like, well, what's worse that happen? You know, I could fail. And that's like the biggest 
fear everyone has. <laughs> Right. It's like, I could fail. That would suck. That'd be terrifying. Like, what would I do? And, you know, it sounds like you were able to use your past failures um, and as ways to find power in yourself and realize that I've been there. I've done that. And that's a, that's a really important thing for people to realize that, like, if you go through these hard things and that you can, they can be empowering and they can, you know, you, you, you utilize that in a way. Most people, I think most people, when they have that shame of guilt, it just, it just, they just starts piling on and every failure is a reflection of their previous failures. Right. And you were yeah, able to totally. like transition out of that and just like, be like, no, like those, those, those failures empowered me. I learned from them and I'm going to then continue to grow from them and through them. Yeah. So, I don't know. That was my soapbox for a minute. I no, just, I just think I, that's so cool. I think you're so cool to be able to do that. Like, I just think like, I think you're really like, you almost undersell yourself because those are, those are, that's a big deal. It's a big deal to just like, like not very many people are willing to step out that far out of their comfort zone, you know, and think like, yeah, like my voice is needed uh, because there are a lot of voices out there that are really needed. And your voice is, your voice is needed and your voice is now there um, at Capitol Hill. So to go back through, uh, you're, you're at Harry Reid's office now. What, what are you doing there? Totally. Thanks so much too. I, uh, so but let me take a quick step back at, and yeah. just address that too. I think a lot of it is understanding and owning my story a little bit early on, uh, owning my story early on in that I, you know, I had worked these other jobs too, but by, by the time I actually got to the Senate majority leader's office, I had worked probably 10 different jobs, 10 or 11, you know, in different service industries, in blue collar work, I had done a lot, I've had kind of a lot of life experiences in that short amount of time. And I was really trying to own that. And um, so I think that helped empower me, especially when I was on Capitol Hill, coming back to kind of um, uh, the reality of, of the way that many other people get to those offices, just going back to kind of how you framed it in the beginning. Um, people were, uh, it, it was very intimidating at the beginning in that they were, you know, like they just had a lot of experiences uh, on their resume. And I came in, um, so the Senate Majority Leader at the time uh, also has what he had a, a Democratic Steering and Outreach Committee. And I was placed into that committee. And so what my role there was to really just do a lot of outreach to the different sectors that um, the majority leader wanted to bring together and talk about big issues. In doing a lot of those admin work, I also was able to get the perks and I sat in and I, you know, was a little bit maybe too forward again, too so naive that I was just so excited to be there and uh, always very happy. <laughs> People were like, you know, uh, just give it a few years and you know, you'll get jaded by our politics. And I'm like, you don't understand where I come from. I, nobody's ever had this experience and I'm going to take it and I'm going to embrace it and just really love every moment that I get to spend here. I worked for a democratic commissioner and um, she was one of the few women there. And I think just going on to how it's, you know, what it's like for women in politics. I mean, that was really a good, uh, it was eye-opening to see the way that she had to check and always be very careful about the things that she said, the things that she posted, how she looked, you know, those are questions that never got asked, never got asked to any male uh, uh, boss that I had. And I just, I always find that to be something. Wait, so give me an example. Give me an example of that. Like, you know, you've worked for, this is the first woman that you've worked for. And, and give me an example of like that. You said questions that, that she got asked that, that men didn't get asked and things that she had to do that, that, that your previous bosses did not. Yeah. So one of the ones that I'll always remember are just, just your profile online and what you say online and the amount of, of hate or vitriol that can come at you if you are a woman versus if you are a male saying the same exact things. 
and being very cognizant and careful of that. And I think as you get into these higher positions, um, people forget that these are real people. And when you're talking to them and you're talking at them and you're tweeting at them, that, that can have real world consequences, you know, and, and there's a lot to take on. It's very heavy um, when they start bringing up, you know, whatever crazy negative comment that they'll give to you or to your family even, you know, those are the things that I, I noticed uh, happen quite often with everybody, uh, with a lot of elected officials, but it seems to be, you know, sometimes um, more often than not, it's easier for men for it to like just roll off your shoulders because a lot of it's just not going to be as targeted as sexist, as like crazy, <laughs> scary in the way that they talk about these things, you know, um, when, and it's easy to do it behind a screen. Um, but some of the hate that just comes out there, I think. Uh, so, so that being said, you know, that can freeze speech sometimes for a lot of women. And, you mm. know, I think about that for myself, like I, would I, do I want to comment on all of these topics? If I do, um, what are going to be the repercussions of that? And is it worth it? And I think that's sad because now we're losing more voices in the conversation for out of fear. And, you know, it's just, some, it's an ongoing um, battle on how to combat that. So do you feel like you have to be a little more careful with your speech with, uh, than your male counterparts? hundred <laughs> percent. Absolutely. Uh, and two, in terms of being, um, you know, the credibility that's given to you, I think that it's, I am always making sure hundred percent that my facts are correct, that I have all of the information that I have any question that people could ask. I have to know about it. I have to know about all of these items before I can even present it to someone just because once you lose that credibility, it's just, it's so hard to gain back. And for women, there's just not as much of a leniency afforded to them, I would say, you know? Yeah, like if you look at some of our candidates, even um, look at our 2016 candidate, you know, Hillary Clinton, she uh, was so prepared. Um, she had she had a, a great, she was just as qualified as, as men and, or as any man, she's more qualified than a lot of men and people still didn't even, you know, um, yeah, she was probably the most qualified uh, person to be president that had ever ran for office. Totally. Um, you know, yet there were just so many times like it, it, you, she couldn't, she had to, like if she came across too strong, it was that she was, you know, an angry woman. And, you know, you think about the, the heat that she got for using the term deplorables. Mm. Right. And, and like, I just don't think that same sort of heat comes back at, at, at a man uh, that kind of does that same thing. I think they, yeah, sure. It would have made news headlines for a second, but I just think, you know, I mean, look at the myriad of things that Trump just says and like, he just, you know, he just like, he doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know? Right. And I, I, I think we just, I think we really saw that play out in real time and we will mm -hmm. continue to see that, you know, play out in, in, in politics. So yeah. I mean, just that, that's, that's going to be hard to be in that space and, and seeing that, that play out on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it's just an everyday battle. And, um, but one, one thing I will say is, uh, it does feel like the tides are changing for a little bit. Um, there's a lot of, of good that's been happening in the last four years. I would say, I, you know, the silver lining of having somebody like, uh, the current president in is, um, accelerating a lot of just the feelings and sentiments of like, uh, for, for women that I'm not going to let this guy get away with the misogyny, get away with, you know, a lot of yes. <laughs> horrible things he's saying. And it's like, you see a lot of women stepping up now and running for office and organizing and being up, just being involved. And I think lending their voices to, um, how to, how to make change happen, I think is huge. And that's, that really isn't um, a Democrat or Republican thing because, you know, if you look at this year, a lot of, you know, there was a few Republican women who, who have 
been elected. It's just uh, uh, understanding that women have, you know, power in their voices and, and they don't need to be as, as scared. Um, to, I to hadn't say thought them. about that idea of Donald Trump uh, accelerating. Uh, and I don't know why, because we saw it in 2018, right? There was this like wave yeah. of women. Uh, there was this wave of minorities who uh, were like, no, like this guy doesn't speak for America and right. we're going to get our voices in. And so it did, it did accelerate the process. That is really exciting to, to think about. I mean, we saw the, the, that what that brought with the women's March in yeah, uh, for you know, sure. 2016, that it was just incredible. I don't even know how many women were there, but it was massive, you know, this, this massive thing. So that was just, uh, yeah, I hadn't thought a lot about that, yeah. that process. It's exciting. Yeah, no, and there's, I mean, there, there were like a bunch of books too ran out about women running and more women getting involved in politics. Um, and I think it helps a little bit too when you have, again, just more voices at the table and more people talking about their different experiences. And that's one thing I kind of wanted to go back to too is um, it's easy for me to identify those because, I, because I'm a woman, because I uh, am Latina, but it, it doesn't always have to be about your demographics or gender. It can be where you're from too. And it can be your background in what you did, you know, just kind of going back to all of the work and life experiences that people have are become their expertise as they move forward in, in addressing um, policy and politics, you know? So looking at somebody like Senator Mike Lee, or, or just any, you know, looking at some, looking at a at a politician. Who, you can name Mike Lee. <laughs> you can name Mike Lee. Let's go after Mike Lee for a minute. No, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean he's you know, guy. but uh, and he has this great pedigree, and he has a lot of experience in in what he's done. But you know, there are so many different avenues that people can take that can give you some of those emphasis on on the people that you're people that you're leading well you know i think it's really incredible because you you, you know you get back and you're starting to think about your experience right and 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 your experience you have viewed it as a as something that brings you power and that gives because you have had all these different jobs you've worked in all these different places you didn't have a straight line and that you actually represent America in a way that other people, that the majority of people who had had this straight line path to Capitol Hill, you actually represent the people in a way that they do not. And you, and so you have a very important voice. And, and the fact that you recognize that voice and see the, that they are part of what makes you unique and that that is so needed is really what gives you your power. And, and the fact that you were able to recognize that and not walk into a room and you did talk about being intimidated, but I, I would definitely be intimidated in that, in those situations, but you're like, no, I, I feel intimidated, but, but I'm, I know that my voice is important and that right. is, that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think also feeling the sense of responsibility and weight of maybe I, I try and, I mean, obviously you know, um, as a Latina, we're not all monoliths in the Latino or Latinx community, but sometimes I'm the only woman. Sometimes I'm the only uh, person of color in the room. And I, I have, I feel that weight on me of mm. bringing those voices to the table. Um, because if, because if you don't, they don't get heard. How, I mean, your, your home where you grew up is in Utah and now you have all this experience in politics. Uh, do you ever have a desire to run for politics? <laughs> oh man. Um, so it's funny that you mentioned that actually. Uh, it was uh, about 2018 or 2019 when um, I did talk to some people uh, asking what the process was like to run, uh, because I was so, it was hard to see, uh, what this administration was doing, uh, in particular, I don't know if you remember when, um, there was an influx of, of immigrants coming from the border and 
there were these pictures, there were these like horrible pictures coming of the kids in cages and the dad and the daughter. I don't know if you know which one mm-hmm. I'm referencing. Yeah. Um, man, that broke me. That was so hard to look at and to watch. And it was just gut wrenching. And I was like, I like, I got to do something. What am I, you know, I, I was in a capacity. I was in an agency where we were doing good work, but it was just like, I felt that we needed to do something now. And I was like, you know what? My hometown Congressman, (laughs) Rob Bishop, he was retiring. Um, There was an open seat that never happens in Utah. I know it's super red, but you know what? If I could flip five state house seats, like that could be a win um, because we just needed to do something. There was, there was too much hurt and there was too much rage going on around the country of, of all of these injustices happening that I talked to uh, the DCCC, you know, I talked to the state party. I talked to some consultants about what that process was like. Um, it's hard. It's a lot to, to pick up, to think of the idea that I'm just gonna like pick up my life here and move back home in a race that is just such an uphill battle for Democrats. Um, And, you know, I have, it's not just me anymore. It's my husband and we have our two kids, you know, trying to like think about what they're going to do. But it's, it was important work. And I, and that, you know, in the end, I thought that not then it wasn't a good time. And, And I also saw that there were some good people who did put their hat in the race. You know, I, I really, really respect, Jamie Cheek in in her running, and I just I know that she's got a good a good vibe for what's happening in Northern Utah. Um, so not not now, but that doesn't mean not ever. Well, I think that's really interesting that you you know we talked earlier about this poll of women feeling uh, a need and an empower to and particularly a Latina woman uh, as you're seeing what's happening during the Trump administration. And that you felt that pull too, and ultimately you realized uh, that not now, and that uh, you were having a an impact where you are, and and doing some really good things. And so there are lots of different ways for people to get involved and to use their skills and use their their uh, expertise to make a difference in the world. And that running for office is is one of those, and we need people uh, to do that. But you are definitely uh, doing that and using those skills. How, what would be your advice to someone like yourself that has maybe not that perfect pedigree uh, to get a job or get involved in politics? What would be your advice for someone that wants to make a difference but doesn't know how right now? Today's always a good day to start. <laughs> whatever it is, whatever you're interested in, um, look into it. There's There are so many different um, um, information out that's out there online that's credible one look at credible information but that um, you know it, I would say that you know uh, there's a lot of people who assume that everybody in politics knows what they're doing um, but that's not always, you know, I, I think everyone's just kind of, it's a fake it till you make it. And, and that's a real <laughs> sentiment. Um, it's not to say that people aren't smart and, and aren't, uh, dedicated to this work, but there, no one has all the answers. And, you know, there's it's always just so important to really get involved where you are. Uh, it doesn't have to be running for, you know, a president or running for Congress or running for, it can be running for your local city council. Well, and I just love that idea. And you know, that you, uh, that is a form of wisdom is being able to like, like know what you don't know. And that's a big problem. I think on Capitol Hill is these guys don't know what they don't know and they think they know it all. Good. Right. Um, so yeah, you bring an awesome perspective. Uh, I, I love what you're doing. I thank you so much for coming on and just sharing that with this and I think we can learn like you said just just go and do get in, get involved um, do something that you can like maybe you want to like start a podcast and have people on and talk to them but you don't know how to do that and you totally. just decide that you're going to do it one day <laughs> yeah that's what you got to do and then the first next, thing, thing, next thing you know you're having like really cool conversations with people like Jessica that are like 
and you're learning so much from different people all the time. And so, yeah, just like if you have an idea and you want to get involved and you feel like you can make a difference, I love what you said about that and just yeah. and just doing it and that your voice is important. Well, this is well, great. And also, for on. yeah, thanks so much for having me. And that's it for the podcast today. Special thanks again to Jessica Martinez for coming on the pod, sharing her experiences and her stories with us. And hey, you know what? I have not given enough shout outs to my man, Dan Martinez, who is the brother of our guest today, Jessica. Dan is our guy on the back end, our producer. He makes all of the things happen uh, that you're hearing on the podcast. And so I really, really appreciate him. Check out Deep State Media. He's doing a lot of neat things. Uh, has a couple other podcasts that he's doing. So Dan Martinez with Deep State Media. And also, as always, thanks Decker Yazi for our artwork and August the Great for our awesome theme music. Have a good one. We'll see you, everybody. Community Spread is a Deep State Media production. It's produced by me, Kevin Lundell, and directed and edited by Dan Martinez.